75th birthday. It's the 99th anniversary of the arrival on this planet of Thelonious Monk. And I love that LP noise in the background, but we're going to let that slide away. (laughs) My name is Mitch Goldman, and uh, I'm going to be here with you for the next three hours with um, very happy to welcome back to the studio Vijay Iyer. Hello. Hello. How's it going? Oh, man. How bad could it be on yeah. a, such a day? It's You know, they declared it a national holiday. As they should. <laughs> Absolutely. Why did it take them this long? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. We've been waiting. So uh, we're going to do something a little bit special. This is actually, I think, the first time that uh, I'm doing this. I'm, this is my regular time slot, Monday right. night, as you know, because yes. you've been here with me. Yeah, we talked about Andrew Hill we, not too long ago. Not too Yeah, which was... Uh, also a treat, but we're setting that aside for the moment because that was that was my show, Deep Focus. Yes. So we're doing a special Deep Focus edition, a little subset within the Monk Birthday broadcast. And uh, what we do when we do this is uh, we find, I find, some rare unreleased live recordings of the artist and uh, find somebody with a special affinity for that artist to. Uh, bring some wisdom to it and help us hear it with new ears. And I think that to say that you have a special affinity for the music of Thelonious Monk is a little bit of an understatement. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've, um, yeah, I've been obsessed with him for 30 years. And uh, he's one of the reasons I'm a musician. And he's kind of one of the, for me, one of the founding architects of, modern piano playing and um he's my biggest influence by far as a composer and band leader and everything about what he does has touched me in some way so i'm just honored to get to celebrate him on this illustrious day yes 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 you used a couple of interesting words there that i'm going to ask you to expand on a little bit you used the word architect you used the word modern. I think those are, well, they're words that people use a lot talking about art in different ways, but I think they have a very special magnetism <laughs> in association with Thelonious Monk. And they're, they're words that I might have used too. So maybe you can uh, talk about that a little bit more. Well, I guess... Um he leads you to hear structure, you know, and so the choices he makes as an artist are not just choices about what to play, but what the music is going to be, 
you know, um, which is which is to say that he has in mind the entire shape of a piece, um, and what that entails is not just, for example, a 32-bar form or a 16-bar form, but also its ingredients, like what's in the song, you know, what's in the melody, what are the rhythmic details, what are the intervals, what is the music made out of, you know, at this foundational level, at the level of, you know, sounds and time. <laughs> so, um, and then that becomes raw material for the entire piece, you know, for the entire performance. He, he used to tell people, you know, don't solo off the changes, solo off the melody, which is to say the structural details that I put into the composition are what you're working with here as an improviser. So don't forget that, that this is what's going to set you off and this is going to lead you in a certain direction that just mere chord changes aren't going to tell you. You know, they're not going to give you enough information to do that. And some of the iconic um, moments when you hear that happen, I think, like, for me, one of my favorites is hearing Coltrane play with Monk. Hearing him play a song like Trinkle Tinkle, which is written for the piano. You know, it's written at the, it's made at the piano out of things that the hand does at the piano. You know, it's very pianistic. And then to hear that kind of, taken up on a wind instrument where the fingerings aren't going to be so obvious and the phrasing is very awkward and um, you know to, to hear what that then does to Coltrane as an improviser like what he where he takes it where the provocation that's in the melody leads him you know so I think you hear that in every instance of his of Monk's band leading um, is that the players are led somewhere just by virtue of the structures that they're surrounded by, you know? How different is that from the thinking, the prevailing mode of thought at that time in particular? Well, it's hard to say because, you know, his influence is so deep that sometimes we forget how deep it is, like how omnipresent it is, you know? the role of the flatted fifth so-called in and so-called bebop you know like that interval is there because he put it there you know like the uh um i don't know tritone substitutions and stuff that people think of as just kind of common jazz language is really a lot of them were his invention or his idea and his he's put them into practice in a very specific way that had a certain sound you know um, so sometimes people think of these like general jazz things that people do as um, habitual or eternal or something, but they actually came from people. They were ideas that people had. There was a time when they didn't exist, and then people had these <laughs> ideas, and then they, they were around, you know, and suddenly people were working with them. But like I said, I mean, Monk had so much influence in his community among all the musicians that we revere, Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie and Bud Powell, Max Roach, Art Blakey, you know, the Miles Davis. I mean, people whom we think of as the founders of this music. Um, but he was one of the, he was one among them that they all learned from. They all would spend time with him at his house 
checking out his ideas and concepts and he set them off so that influence runs deep and starts pretty early you know 52nd street theme and stuff like that so so then when we are listening to something from the 60s um often people would say well this is like a throwback or something but actually what's easy to forget is how radical it always was you know and how foundational it is to this music that we're now so used to hearing and you know what also always grabbed me what first grabbed me about monk is that um i mean maybe this gets to your question is that like by the time i first heard him i had already heard red garland keith jarrett herbie hancock um couple other people seems like what they all had in common was that they played with Miles Davis and then when I and somehow all roads are pointing back to Monk somehow this is when I was like 15 or 16 I was rummaging around trying to find my way through like the local library's record collection this is in the 80s when you could do those kinds of things (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and I found uh that everybody was playing Monk's music. So then I found him, a recording of him. There were two records that I found. One was called Live in Tokyo. It was with his quartet with Rouse from the 60s uh, on Columbia. And another was from the what was called the Giants of Jazz Tour, which was one of the last tours he did. It's from the early 70s with Dizzy Gillespie, Art Blakey, Al McKibben, Sonny Stitt. Um, I think Kai Winding was on there. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> And then, so those were my two points of reference. They were both live recordings. And just hearing him play, after having heard Herbie and Keith and so forth, McCoy, um, and having heard Red Garland, too, he wasn't like any of them, you know? And this guy's supposed to be basically, you know, like one of the profound influences on this music. And I had been shown how to play piano in a certain way, like how to play a ballad using jazz voicings and so on and then I heard Monk and I'm like well he's not doing any of that what is he doing he's not he's hardly doing anything that I recognize really um it seems like every sound he's making is a choice made in that moment but somehow also um having this almost ancient wisdom in it so that's kind of a what began my now 30-year obsession with this man's music. That'll um, do it, yeah. Yeah, and so here I am. He's also <laughs> <laughs> it's his 99th birthday, and I'm still here. And um, it's interesting, too, that he, he, I think of him as the arch-modernist. And something, I had a very similar pathway into the music, and it's funny how things were then where you, you reached out for these handholds and it wasn't like now where you can just oh i'm going to go to youtube and i'm going to find everything all at once (laughs) and you know yeah it was whatever happened to land in your local library yes very similar um and something i didn't realize till much later was how deeply tied in he also is to the earliest days of the music more than any of those guys that you mentioned of course yeah well he you know, he connects to, very obviously, to Duke Ellington's playing. I mean, obvious to those of us who know Duke Ellington's piano playing. Um, 
after you took that one out of the library. <laughs> exactly, yes. It took me some time to find that. Um, and then also, very clearly, that's a lineage, you know, that also includes James B. Johnson. And then I also, I guess, found myself hearing forward into the history. Um, so Bud Powell and Herbie Nichols and Elmo Hope and Randy Weston and Andrew Hill and McCoy Tyner and Chick Corea even. Um, you know, if you ask Roy Haynes about it, he'll talk to you about that connection. Um, and, uh, you know, many, Jerry Allen actually was, uh, when I was coming of age in the mid to late 80s, I was starting to hear her and she helped um, con make that connection for me. And I was also listening to Sun Ra's piano playing. And all of this another was, one, yes, actually. Yeah. So all of this felt like there was this family resemblance, you know. And then there were people who, who didn't have that, you know, who didn't have, didn't seem like they were from the same family. And that was fine. It's just that they were different, you know. So I guess I found myself latching on to that whole lineage. And Andrew Hill became a major touchstone for me. Um, Randy Weston, same thing, and Bud Powell, and uh, so that somehow it all started with my obsession with Monk, and then it kind of radiated outward in both directions historically. So yeah, and, and then Tatum, I should put in there. I mean Tatum, you know, people don't often think of them in the same vein as pianists, but um, there's something in. At the, somewhere at the level of pulse, like their the way of dealing with time, that I feel is that there's a connection. Um, you know, in terms of the way their hands behave on the instrument, it's very different. But in terms of the way the impulse springs forth from somewhere in the torso, I don't know how to say it, but like there's a bodily kind of um, uh, reality to the timekeeping that is um is very resonant for me and i hear it in both of them and that that idea of modernism is that uh do you mean that more generically bringing it forward into more contemporary sound or does that have a capital m kind of oh i meaning for you i i don't think i said modernism i just said modern maybe i should have said yeah. contemporary i don't know i mean today you know like yeah um the piano as it is played today in 2016 yeah. is informed by 99 years of Thelonious <laughs> Monk yeah. and, and in particular you know and counting uh, everything we've gotten to hear since he started sharing his music with the world yeah. and um that's not that we've heard all that he shared but everything that he impacted through his um just through his generosity you know as a musician and what he showed others and how he influenced others. We hear it at every corner of this music. Yeah. You are listening to WKCR. It's the birthday anniversary of Thelonious Monk. And every year on this day, October 10th, we set the whole day aside for nothing but Monk's music and the consideration of it. And uh, tonight, I'm Mitch Goldman. Vijay Iyer is here with me. And we just might extend the known recordings of Thelonious Monk for certainly I think for a lot of our audience and uh, we've got some stuff that's 
yeah. less familiar. For sure. For sure. Uh, so. This stuff that you pulled for me is uh, some of some of it I'd heard in the in my travels, but and and the, I guess what you're going to start with here is some of the first live footage I ever saw of Monk, because in the '80s there was this film that came out called Straight No Chaser, which was a documentary portrait of Thelonious Monk. It's not the only one in existence, and it's you know it has its issues. Um, as a film in terms of what it did for our understanding of Monk. And actually I should mention that there was another film that came out not long afterward called Thelonious Monk, American Composer. That was a producer directed by Quincy Troop. And that actually rounds it out. So I think those two films taken together, Straight No Chaser and Thelonious Monk, American Composer, will um, give you a more complete portrait of the man and his music. Yeah, Straight No Chaser, uh, which has some real revelations. Yes, it really does. It really does. And it really shocked me to see uh, in a way that was like, I felt such a um, visceral connection to his music and his playing um, just by seeing it in action. And they, you know, one of the sayings, I think, this may be a quote from Thelonious Monk Jr., uh, maybe if he's listening, he can call in and let me know if I'm mistaken. <laughs> but uh, um, he, somebody on some in some clip somewhere said, you haven't heard Monk until you've seen him. And that sounds a little strange until you actually do get to see what's going on. And in a way, it connects all the dots for you. And then you think, well, this is this makes perfect sense. I mean, in a way why um, it's not to say that um, there's something missing if you just hear it but that to see it in action to see all the sounds you hear as decisions made in that instant and to see the conditions in which they are made you know um, and in the sense of uh, the uh, urgency of it you know and the the uh, force of it and the power of it, you know, just the the, the um, certitude of it, you know. And you get a sense of who this man was. Yes, absolutely. That's that's exactly right. And uh, a lot of that, and I had not been, I haven't seen or thought about that movie in a long yeah, time. Yeah. I have to admit. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm wading into uh, deep water here a little bit, but uh, that was shot along with around the same time as this recording was made. Right. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. So, so the, some of what we're going to hear, I think, with this non-net, yeah. special non-net, yeah. is, is some of, the, of what features in that film. Yeah. And I'm trying to remember um, exactly what the sequence. There were a few different recordings, large ensemble recordings made of Monk's music during his lifetime. And uh, there was the town hall concerts earlier in the 60s. Now it's 67 and... Um, was it? I think it was Oliver Nelson did the arrangements. I, I believe the town hall stuff. No, no, this stuff. The six, sixty-seven, the nonet. Oh, I. I might not, be wrong about that. I'm not. I th I'm not sure. I, my, I guess my understanding was that Monk had kind of put it together himself. I um, don't. But maybe I'm wrong. I, I want to say there was somebody doing. Well, I'll leave that alone because, uh, as I said, this is that is not immediately available to me uh, I didn't research yes. it but in Maybe any we'll case get, so somebody out there is going to 
Yeah. I'm, oh, look, the phone's lighting up I'm already. I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> Y'all don't know uh, nothing. <laughs> we don't. We, I've never done this before. <laughs> I, I just saw an ad on Craigslist and I answered, and uh, here I, I am. Yeah, yeah. So, I um, but I will tell you. Okay, we're going to take a little trip to Mainz. It says Germany. It's West Germany, the Liederhalle. And uh, November 8th, 1967 is the date. And the ensemble was, uh, and it's interesting because there's different uh, arrangements with among these nine musicians. The first piece we'll hear is a quartet recording in it, so it's Monk at piano. Charlie Rouse is long-standing tenor saxophone, uh, tenor saxophonist up front. Larry Gale's on the bass, Ben Riley on the drums. And they are supplemented by Ray Copeland on trumpet, who had played uh, with Monk in his early days as a leader. Johnny Griffin also, who's 57 around the That's time, right. same time with Coltrane. Jimmy Cleveland on trombone, Phil Woods on alto sax, Clark Terry on trumpet. Indeed. <laughs> I, I mean, you couldn't really ask for a yeah. better uh, yeah. bunch of wind players to supplement this music. And um, so, yeah, we're going to hear... And don't uh, forget Larry Gales and Ben Riley. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, stellar, very, very monk familiar <laughs> rhythm section uh his uh a couple of his stalwarts right there and we're gonna hear a quartet version of ruby my dear and then something that i think is of particular interest to our guest tonight <laughs> oh yeah well i wanted to make sure we featured a good amount of solo playing and he always would work it in to their live performances there'd be at least one solo piece in there often a standard um, done his way, mm-hmm. which would be a, a radical reshaping of the song, harmonically and otherwise, and um, very finely wrought and uh, sort of um, st- what, what would you say, striking? See, um, sometimes people would say pungent, but it's not just that. They would the the sonorities would just sort of activate the ear in a way. It wasn't used to hearing, uh, hearing chords or hearing harmony. So um, you'll hear it. Yeah. Hear it. Have you heard this recording, this particular one? Of Don't Blame Me? I'm pretty sure I have. I mean, I know I've heard a live version. Well, we'll see when we get there. All right. All right. It's the Thelonious Monk birthday broadcast. This is a live recording you might possibly have never heard from Mainz, West Germany, 1967 on WKC. Warming up on stage, we direct your attention to the Buna.
Thank you. 
Thelonius Monk hat viel von dem eingeführt in den Jazz, was sich heute in den 60er Jahren von selbst versteht, asymmetrische Rhythmen und unvollendete, nur angedeutete Phrasen und aufgeweitete Harmonik. Kritiker der Konzertmusik haben ihn mit Debussy und Ravel verglichen. Und doch bleibt seine Musik, Sie haben das gerade eben bei diesem Solo über Don't Blemy gehört, der Jazz-Tradition verbunden, dem Streitpiano der 20er Jahre. Nun ein weiterer Solist, den ich Ihnen ankündigen darf. Die Jazzfreunde unter Ihnen werden wissen, dass ich das moderne Trompetenspiel in der Spannung zwischen Dizzy Gillespie und Miles Davis abspielt. Fast alle heutigen Trompeter kommen von dem einen oder von dem anderen her und unterscheiden sich im Grunde nur dadurch, wie sie die beiden miteinander verbinden und weiterentwickelt haben. Auf einem ganz hohen Niveau gibt es eigentlich nur einen, der jenseits davon steht, vor dem Heraufkommen des Free Jazz. Und das ist der Mann, den ich Ihnen jetzt vorstellen möchte, dem europäischen Jazz sehr verbunden, seit der Ende der 50er Jahre lange mit dem Orchester Quincy Jones in Europa war. Danach gehörte er dann zu Duke Ellington. Und in den letzten Jahren ist er zu einem der meistgesuchten New Yorker Studiotrompeter geworden, auf Dutzenden von Schallplatten Jahr für Jahr vertreten. Ich möchte Ihnen vorstellen, Mr. Mumbles, Clark Terry.
Thelonious Monk with a little bit of an unusual arrangement. It is a non-net. This tour that took place in 1967, we are in Mainz, West Germany. I love saying those German city names. (laughs) November 1967. It's the Thelonious Monk birthday broadcast. And we are in the deep focus segment of this 24-hour broadcast. I'm Mitch Goldman, and Vijay Iyer is in the studio with me. And uh, the two of us are uh, tickled. (laughs) Yeah, we gave you a bit of a tease because we told you the non-at was coming, but they haven't come yet. But so far, we did hear the quartet with Charlie Rouse and Larry Gales and Ben Riley. And we also heard this fantastic trio performance, Clark Terry, with... Gales and Riley, wow. playing his version of Rhythmening, which has a sort of variation on the A section, which I've never heard before, and that was quite a shock. I'm going to have to take this one home. Yeah. <laughs> sit with that. Clark alone. I would say I said when Clark Terry came in on trumpet, I said, "Well, every trumpeter in the audience just fell out of their yes, chair." Yes, <laughs> that was really astonishing. I mean, that feel he has and buoyancy. In yes, and his, in his uh, sense of time and um and just the playfulness the phrasing and uh i don't know would you call it a lilt <laughs> uh, yeah i would call it a lilt uh, yes and yeah. that that buttery perfect tone no yeah. yeah yeah we're in we are in uh fine company here the quartet so the core of the group we haven't heard an uh well yeah we heard a we'll talk about Monk's contribution to this point. Uh, Thelonious Monk, of course, on piano. Charlie Rouse, tenor saxophone. Larry Gales on bass and Ben Riley, the drums, is the quartet. Monk's band for how long? A decade already and more at this point was his working group. Various members moving in and out. Yeah, we had, there was Frankie Dunlop and there was other bass players in there too. Uh, But yes, this was, in this period, this was a pretty solid working band. There's a lot of footage of them and a lot of other live recordings of them. Sidebar, by gum, go to YouTube and look up Thelonious Monk. You'll find all kinds of great stuff that uh, we can't quite convey to you through the radio, but uh, you have the opportunity that Young Vijay, once upon a time in the public library, could have only dreamt of <laughs> to actually see these guys playing. And it is a revelation to really see them. Really and uh, there's tons of stuff that's uh, beyond all the recordings that are known. I mean, I don't know if anybody's... Is anybody actually trying to update the discographies with all the stuff that's floating around on YouTube? I mean, well, it's it sort of... Um, it actually kind of changes our notion of what a discography is because all this, these live recordings are coming out and there's a bit of a flattening happening because it used to be that we had these definitive recordings that were kind of done under the auspices of some record label and in some professional studio, but now we have all these other documents that are just as strong and just as important, maybe more important, because they're in the context of an audience, which means that something is being communicated and that's what you're hearing. You're not just hearing um, music in some pure sense. You're hearing it in motion. You're hearing it uh, landing on people. You know, yeah. and, and that is uh, well. That that will lead people to um, well. The performers make different kinds of choices in those contexts. It's not constrained by how long 
matter how big a piece of vinyl you can sell, you know, it's not about that at all. It's about what the music needs at this moment because of all the forces in the room and everyone who's here with you. And so, they have the mistaken idea that whatever they do will be gone the instant they do it. <laughs> well, <laughs> which, despite the fact that we're here listening to it 50 years later, but some of it is gone. I mean, you have to. Th- those of us who are involved in live music, we know that um, a recording of it is not it. <laughs> in a way, there's something that's in that moment that eludes capture, and that's in a way what defines it. Given that, though, uh, tip of the hat to the recording engineers from the German radio yeah. station because it's a stellar recording. It really sounds good, yeah. So uh, the quartet, supplemented by the five-man win section of uh, Ray Copeland and Clark Terry playing the trumpets, Johnny Griffin on tenor saxophone, Phil Woods on alto saxophone, Jimmy Cleveland playing the trombone. So we're going to hear, those guys are going to come out on stage, and we'll get another little introduction for them. Yeah, are you going to speak German again? <laughs> I, I might. <laughs> like you did that time. <laughs> I, I just might. You know, for for those who are, you know, we, we have we have listeners all over. Yeah. We're multicultural here. So, uh, yes, you're listening to WKCR-FM New York and WKCR-HD1. We have set this side a, de- a day aside to remember Thelonious Monk. And uh, we are, uh, yeah, we're, we're, we are exploring the WKCR archives. Indeed. With these fantastic rare recordings. Um, I wanted to ask you about your take on that uh, thrilling solo piano yes. performance. <laughs> yeah. You know, I often, um, when I have piano students, I'll have them take, you know, choose a, a favorite solo monk recording and really dissect it like actually can you learn to do all of that like f- dig into each of those sonorities and can you really find all the notes in it what is in it and why you know can you ex- can you explain or motivate each choice that he made this, this is somewhere beyond twinkle twinkle little star yeah it's a it. bit beyond that <laughs> i don't know i mean he probably has a version of that that <laughs> we could yeah. learn from um what did I hear? There's, is it Deck the Halls or something? It's like some Christmas carol of his. I can't remember what it is. Anyway, um, what you find is that uh, there's all this like sly misdirection in it in terms of um, the melody is in there, but the way it's uh, approached and augmented and decorated and kind of uh, elaborated from both directions, you know, like... Uh, a melody note might not be the top note, actually. There might be some other... He might um, sustain one note, but he might just touch a note somewhere above it that will kind of just jab you at the attack point and then vanish. And you'll wonder, what just happened? He's playing a D, but something else has just happened to me. <laughs> you don't know what it was. <laughs> it just kind of like passed right through you. Things like that, um, the way he will reharmonize something the way he'll spread out the sound across the piano. Uh, the timing, you know, the phrasing, the, the what seems something like, sometimes like uh, a halting uh, temporal flow, but it's actually because he wants each sonority to really get you, 
it, uh, it's really like these chords. You could call them chords. They're not exact. They're not just chords. They're really like sonic experiences, you know. Uh, and each one of them is somehow hard won. It's like he discovered it before anybody else because of this lifetime with the piano. He found and this exploratory kind of um, sensibility he had where he could discover these combinations that, you know, you'd think, well, there's only 88 notes, so how many combinations are there? Well, he's found more than you have. He found many more that no one had ever found. And what, it was kind of about what they did. Like, what did these chords do? They, they activated your senses in a way. They opened up your ear and they... Uh, told a story that was bigger than the song. You know, if one is taking a standard like Don't Blame Me, it's not just that song anymore. It's something else. He's kind of uh, carried you somewhere new. So that's, you know, in a way, in all of these solo recordings you hear it, but you definitely hear it, in a, in especially in a live um, moment like this, where he's delivering it to an audience it's not just making the piano do something it's actually making the room do something you know uh it's making those people's bodies do something and he has this communicative power that um i think it has roots in that experience he had as a teenager touring with a preacher you know he uh learned how to really rock a room full of people by himself uh, and that is a, something that changes you. And people you know who have that kind of um, expertise from, say, playing in the church or having those kinds of formative experiences, uh, really functioning with the music, like making people, leading people to, a pla to a, some sort of higher place, you know, just by making this object vibrate. That's uh, profound, and he has it, and you can hear it in those choices he makes, in those chords that he conjures, and in those vibrations. Do you see, there were certain songs that it seems he was drawn to, and uh, do you see a pattern among those? Do you, uh, is there something in those particular songs, or is it just that he had worked things out for those songs, do you think? Do you, um, I don't know if. You have any special knowledge of this, but hmm. just, I don't know. Uh, you know the, who would be good to talk to about this is Robin Kelly. Yes, he would, my dear friend and the author of the great one of the greatest books on music ever written. Yeah. <laughs> if you ask me, yeah, uh, Thel yeah, I mean, yeah, the Thelonious most Monk, the Life and Times of an American Original, I think, is the name of the book. It came out several years ago and really changed the game. Yeah, um, especially and in light of the fact that there were there were other books that have been written about Monk yes, that were yeah. I don't want to denigrate them, but, you know, the level of immersion yeah, that Robin yeah, Kelly the took to and the, the topic. And the, lo the love, yeah. you know, and, and the sort of, he, you know, the family was involved in it. and uh, it, it was, uh, yeah, I don't, I can't think of another music biography I've read that's yeah. as thoroughgoing yeah, as that. Yeah, So anyway, I think he's able to motivate some of those repertoire choices. Um, I think he probably even says something about this song in that book, if I remember. 
but I can't remember what he said. I should have reread it. I <laughs> should have right. right. before I answered that Craigslist ad. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, but let's get into this non Yes, now. yes. Tell the folks where are we like, going. This is, oh, well, this this is getting is, into the meat. Yeah, this is smoking. Um, these are recordings that I've known for a while. Uh, one is Evidence, and the other is Oscar T, which is this... I don't. This is a tune that not many people know by Monk because it's really like. It's so, it's like a micro song because it kind of is just a vamp. You know, it doesn't have a bridge. It's barely even has an A section. It's just sort of. It's like Friday the Thirteenth. It's like one of those that's just sort of like runs around in circles, and you think like, well, you can't take this anywhere, and then they do, and they really like just unpack it and ex- explode it and. The groove is so hard with these guys. I mean, that's what makes it work. Um, yeah. So these two, these two jams back to yes. back. <laughs> yes. The people in the Liederhalle in Mainz, West Germany, were in for a treat, as are you. And especially if you've never heard this, it's never been released officially, but it's been floating around among the collectors, and. Um, November 8th, 1967. Thelonious Monk Nanette. It's Thelonious Monk Radio on WKCR.
there's exactly one thing about this podcast that makes me immensely sad. And that is that I can't play the whole thing for you. The entire middle hour of this program is missing. We have a rueful little uh, description of the radio station where I record the show. We call it the home of technical difficulties, which it often is. And it bites us when we want it to least. Well, it's hitting me today because when I recorded this program on October 10th, 2016, I record the show to CDs. That's why a lot of the time it's CD length. It's 80 minutes or a hair under. And the second of the three CDs did not come out. So I say this to you partly to explain why this next chunk of the show is missing, but also hoping maybe, maybe you recorded the show. Did you record this show when it aired in 2016? Can you share that with me and your fellow Deep Focus listeners? If so, email me. I'm going to give you the address. It's deepfocusnow at gmail.com. Deepfocusnow at gmail.com. And I would love to hear from you if you have a recording of this show. Wouldn't that be great? Well, you know, the thing I always say is, uh, rather than crying about what we don't have, is how happy we should be about what we do have. I'm so glad I can share this with you, what we do have, because this is is a pretty special one. This was the birthday anniversary of Thelonious Monk. WKCR does a birthday broadcast. It's been doing it for many years since Monk was alive, and... Uh, even some before that. So that's, yeah, it's going back quite a ways. This was his 99th birthday anniversary, October 10th, 2016. Also, that was the 75th birthday of WKCR in that it was October 10th, 1941 that WKCR was given its broadcast license. So very significant day. And who better to share it with than Vijay Iyer, And I don't have to tell you why, because you've been listening to the show for, well, uh, over an hour, hour 19. So uh, I do have part three of the show. I'm going to call it part two because we only have two parts. It's the most of the third hour of the program. So we have a total of about two hours of this broadcast episode. So uh, this is part one. I'll see you over at part two. Have you subscribed? Do you have uh, Deep Focus on your favorite podcasting app? Did you check? I hope you did. And if you did and you like it, I think you do because you're still tuned in. Please do let us know. It really does make a difference in helping people who don't know about the show to find it. There's a lot of podcasts out there, but I think you'll agree with me. There's not a lot quite like this one, are there? It's Deep Focus. I'm your host, Mitch Goldman. Hey, I'll see you over at part two.